So we're doing the Kingdom of God series. Uh, there was some discontinuity therein, and so I decided just to kind of start over again and review everything. And uh, so that we covered in chapter one the uh, fact that the kingdom of God is the major theme of the whole Bible. It's the and it's the major theme that gives the Bible um, cohesiveness. It's it's the underlying theme that causes the different parts of the Bible to be to be one. And so uh, the sec chapter two we did for three weeks, and. Um, the, my uh, appeal has been to get more people here. I'm thankful for everyone who is here. There's a few people who are not here that probably should be here. That's why we have podcasts. But I will say this. I've studied, uh, I tried to take studying uh, the scriptures, theology, church history, these kind of things pretty seriously uh, uh, since I started a little over 40 years ago on that. And of all the things I've ever studied, taught, thought about, and so forth, the, the material in chapter 2 is the most important material that I have ever spoken or ever given. So chapter 2, the definition of the kingdom. Uh, if you did not hear all three of those messages, if you're, if you're not understanding them, chapter 2, uh, A, B, and C, the three messages that de of the definition of the kingdom, they will be the key that it will unlock your Bible for you. I often hear... Uh, very honest young Christians say, well, I get bogged down in this type of part of the Bible or that type part of the Bible, and I don't enjoy this part of the Bible. And I suggest to you it's because you don't know what it's saying. And uh, it, chapter two will give you the keys to make your whole Bible relevant to you and exciting. So today we're going to look at, uh, we're going to start to look at major biblical themes. Our theme verse is uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the reason major biblical things are important is because all scripture is written by one author, ultimately. We're going to talk more about that in a second. For one unfolding eternal decree or purpose. We're going to talk about the eternal decree today, a uh, major, major idea of scripture. And uh, in order to lay the ground, you need to understand a major point uh, of how to read your Bible, how to study. Theology is just the study of the, the Word of God. That's all it means. Theology is the study of the Word of God. Every Christian does theology, whether you know it or not. So um, an underlying point of the Bible is that the Bible is written by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and he focuses on giving glory to and uh, unveiling the plan of the Father and the Son and unveiling a revelation of the Father and the Son. So the Bible starts with, with God in the sense that everything spoken in the Bible and everything about our faith emanates from the person of God. So the foundation of all true biblical understanding is to study the attributes of God. Okay, now the most important foundational attribute of God, uh, arguably, of course, uh, it's kind of on another level. All the attributes of God are inextricably intertwined, and you can't. We can talk about them separately conceptually but they're never separated. They all, uh, you, God doesn't come in his wrath one time and in his mercy another. God comes as the fullness of God at all times. 
So um, as you study, uh, the first thing you need to know is that the Bible is the written word that reveals the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, and, and it reveals the mind and heart and purposes of God. In other words, um, if you study uh certain kinds of uh, systematic theologies, they'll always start with the inerrancy of Scripture and some things we're going to look at today. But uh, And then they'll go on to the second section uh, of the systematic theology will be the person of God and his attributes and so forth. I suggest to you that that's actually backwards. Uh, Eastern Orthodox theologies and Roman Catholic theologies start with the person of God because Scripture came out of God. And so the key to understanding Scripture is to first study the attributes of God. Now, with that said, there's one very important aspect of God, and that is he is a trinity. God is God the Father, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one being. Now, none of us can get our minds around that, and that leads us to, to a, a major point of, of knowing God is that he reveals himself to us, and we can accept it or reject it, but we can't alter it, and we can either bow before and worship God in his, in his mysteries, but we can't fully understand him. Uh, a very important doctrine is that we understand accurately because God has revealed himself truly but we never understand comprehensively or fully. I've never met the person that understands all mysteries. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, if I understood all mysteries. Well, I haven't yet met anybody like that, uh, nor will I. Uh, I. I don't even actually think that we'll probably understand all mysteries uh, in heaven. But that's another subject. Um, we'll find out when we get there, I guess. But... Uh, God is, God is uh, three persons, yet he's one being, and that truth leads us to a very important biblical truth that, that everything tr that is true is paradoxical, but not antithetical. That is, it's on the surface seems like it might be contradictory, but as you un understand it by the, by the revelation of the Spirit of God, it actually is not uh, an antithetical, it is not a contradiction. So um, the Trinity leads to, the, uh, the concept of the Trinity leads to a very, very important uh, truth, the lack of which understanding has, has devastated the church in modern times. And that's called the one and the many. Everything in the universe has unity and diversity. So that principle, uh, it flows through any true understanding of any subject. And therefore, we have all these fights in the church over things that both sides of which are scriptural and we're obligated to believe. Yet we're fighting over them and dividing over them and dividing and dividing and dividing. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, the principle of the one and the many runs through the whole chapter. And Paul says... We are one body, just like God and his three persons are one God, and we are individually many members thereof, and being actually able to work uh, to find the boundaries of unity, that's what the creeds are an attempt to do, uh, and 
celebrate our diversity and our giftedness and callings and so forth is the essence of enjoying community and, and becoming effective in ministry. So many ministries are less effective than they could be because they're centered about around the superstar and the big speaker and the big guy, and that, that tends to be in the big churches. But what what needs to happen is the the purposes of the leadership needs to be to equip and release everyone else into ministry. You're not really following Christ uh, as as much as he wants you to be. It, it might be okay to follow Christ for maybe a few months, maybe a year, but if you're not actually making progress to be equipped to lead people to Christ, to disciple, to, to counsel, to mature people in the things of the Lord, then you're following a Christ of your own imagination or you're still pretty much Lord of your own life. Because he said, follow me, and I'll equip you to be a fisher of men. And there's a valid place for fishermen to uh, visit the fishing store and get the fishing magazines and learn all about the best fishing equipment. And analogously, we can, uh, you know, we can study the word, we can memorize scriptures, we can uh, go along with an older brother, an older sister as they evangelize and disciple and so forth. But ultimately, God wants you to be fruitful. And he wants you to, to uh, grow up in every area of your life that would keep you from being fruitful. If you need to acquire more knowledge of Scripture, then acquire it. If you need to acquire better social skills, acquire it. If you need to have a better vocational direction so that you have a, a financial and economic base in order to, to give and serve and so forth, then do it. So because John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So this idea of the one and the many runs through all the Bible. Okay, and, and this idea that... Uh, that things are seemingly paradoxical, but they're not antithetical. If you study heresies, that is false teachings, that have developed uh, in general, a lot of the heresies that have attacked the church were in the first few centuries, and, and the formation of the creeds and the councils kind of destroyed those. And then as we as the church got away from being liturgical and and uh, reciting creeds and things like that in the mid 1800s, the, uh, all new heresies were born with the same ideas but different different labels. Christian Science is is a type of Gnosticism, for instance, and uh, and so forth. So the modern heresies kind of came out of the church dropping the ball on a number of things. And um, as if you study all that, um, you'll you'll kind of see this whole principle, the one and the many working through everything. So um, what I want to get into for just a minute here is uh, the doctrine called the plenary inspiration of Scripture, which again comes out of this paradox. What I meant to say when I diverged on the uh, cults and I kind of lost my train of thought, frankly, was that all, all heresy is the overemphasis of a seeming truth without its counterbalancing truths. So the truth is God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But in Gnosticism, you forget that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and the original purpose of the physical creation, God declared it good, good, good three times. And finally, when he created man and woman married, 
naked and for sexuality and reproduction. Then he declared it very good. And uh, so, you know, this idea that uh, marriage is some... Uh, some compromise to our sinful flesh or whatever. No, marriage was God's intention and highest state and, and purpose from the beginning. And the things of this creation, food, God, you know, if you notice right after he told them to uh, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, the very next verse says that he created food for them to enjoy because food has always been part of fellowship with God. It's part of covenant. God always shares a meal. So... Um, if you have a, a, a kind of spiritual Christianity that's often called pietism or neo, neoplatonism or Gnosticism, and that's your, that's your Christianity, it's about our worship, it's about how much we pray, it's about the things we do behind the church doors, but we don't have an incarnational Christianity that's about how we treat our wife, about how we handle our finances, about the, the, our tithe being representative to the Lord that our whole that He created wealth in the first place, and so forth. If we're not, if we don't have a uh, a theology that's incarnational that says I was born to enjoy this physical realm and to conquer it for Christ, without that, you have deception. You have to have the counterbalancing truth. So hopefully that, so what I've established so far is that there's this out of the Trinity, uh, all, all truth comes out of the attributes of God. One of the most important attributes of God is the Trinity. And out of that comes the idea of paradoxical, not yet not antithetical, or uh, what theologians call the one and the many. Everything has universe, un, un, Unity and diversity. Uh, that's where the word university came from in the first place. Universities were a place where theology was the queen of the sciences. History was the, the handmaiden of the queen. And all other uh, disciplines came out of that because all truth comes from the one true God. And so, although there are diversities of subjects to study, they are only true as they are true, it, 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 starting at the foundation of how God revealed them. Science that is done for the glory of God will yield, will yield truth and results. Science done to, to battle against God will take many wrong turns, etc. So with that, let's talk a little bit about a foundational doctrine that's, that's very important called the plenary, which means the full inspiration of scripture. This uh, doctrine is based on two scriptures that are listed there in, in Roman numeral two of your outline. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the word all, I always tell this joke and you're tired of hearing it, but you know, if you study the Greek on it and you Look at how it developed in the Greek language over time and, and study every nuance of it. You'll come to find that all means all. Pretty deep, right? So, uh, you know, pretty bad joke, actually. But, uh, but it's important to see that the all, all means all. That means every dot, every uh, punctuation mark, every uh, dot and tittle, I think they used to say, uh, of scripture is is inspired by God. So the, the scripture, this is really important to see here. The scripture is inerrant. 
There are no errors in it. Jesus, him, you can't be a follower of Christ and believe there are errors in the scripture. Those are, those are not compatible ideas because Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. So what you're, if you say there are errors in the scripture, you're basically saying Jesus had it wrong. So how could we worship him? I like John Gray, but John Gray has it right sometimes and wrong sometimes, as I do. We enjoy fellowship, but neither of us is the least tempted to worship each other because we're wrong all the time. And therefore, it's really obvious that we're not God, right? <laughs> you know, I, I like that line in Rudy. The, the, uh, there, there's a movie called Rudy, and the priest goes, uh, I've studied theology for 30 years, and I've come to understand uh, two truths. One, there is a God, and two, He's not, I'm not him. <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty good start to, to theology. Um, so God is fully right. He's, his, his word is inerrant. Um, before I get into point B and continue on there, I want to say a couple more points about 2 Timothy 3.16. It's important that you see verse 17 with it because that's really the antidote to... Uh, to kind of this whole, what we're talking about, Gnosticism or Neoplatonic Christianity, what some people call pietism, where our Christianity is only about uh, our spiritual things we do, and it's not about our schoolwork, and it's not about our our natural things we do, and bringing everything. You know, there's a lot of teaching in the church today that God comes first, and family comes second, and country third, and all of that's nonsense. God comes first, and everything else needs to be constantly brought under the lordship of Christ in all, in every motive, every attitude, every way. Now we use a tool in the Kingdom of God series that we'll get to uh, in chapter seven called the seven inevitable institutions of God's kingdom. But we need to bring all of those under the lordship of Christ in our life. So, what this scripture is saying is that the teaching. Is that is the, the scriptures God breathed? That's then that, uh, Theos pneumatos. Is it's uh, breathed by the Holy Spirit of God, and it's profitable for every practical part of all life. It's not as we've reduced it to in evangelicalism in the last 150 years about having the theoretical propositions of our faith correct, which is a kind of a Greekifying. Uh, of Christianity that really started probably to, to, to make some uh, footholds in the church as early as the first few centuries, but has really, uh, in, in modern times, has really become quite prevalent, where, our, where our, our understanding of Scripture and theology is a mere abstract idea, not incarnated. Theology must become incarnational or it's false. It, it must be not just about uh, praying a sinner's prayer before God, but it must be about becoming a disciple in practical ways, lived out among a community of believers. If it's not that incarnational in your life, then then you're yet deceived. Okay, so uh, Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is, ever, is everlasting. Um You know, the word sum, uh, most of you have at least gone far enough in mathematics that you know sums, but if you take part of a sum away, you no longer have the sum. 
And one of the things where the church is, is uh, really, really suffering from today is around 90 to 95 percent of scripture Christians that you meet have read some parts of scripture, but have very seldom read all the scripture two or three or more times. So you, you really need to understand that scripture reveals scripture and it's the sum of scripture that's truth. And the scripture was intended uh, to be read as a whole. So as you, as you study the whole Bible, one of the things you'll come to understand is that various parts of the Bible are the key to understanding the other parts of the Bible. Now with that, uh, scripture is inerrant, which means it doesn't have any errors. errors. Now, this is very important to understand. Scripture is historically accurate, but it's not necessarily literal. One of the ideas that crept in about the 1890s and, and became very popular is that we should study and interpret Scripture literally. Can you imagine seeing the, 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 uh, the Bride of Solomon and the Book of Song of Solomon literally? A neck like the Tower of Siloam. I don't think I would want to date that girl. But uh, 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 you know, really, her teeth are like the wool of lambs. I, I fuzzy teeth, just not that not that appealing to me. But uh, you know, a beard, a big beard growing out of her mouth. You know, uh, maybe not. So um, it's 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 a poem. And it's meant to be read as poetry. Now, that what's important about that is this. The Bible, when it's speaking historically, is historically accurate because it's inerrant. But it wasn't meant to be interpreted literally in all cases. It's meant to be in, interpreted according to the genre of literature it's writing. So, for instance, when you're write, reading Job, Logan's favorite book back there, uh, I never read it because I thought it's a job. No, uh, <laughs> no I'm just, oh, too many old jokes. But um, the uh, when you're reading Job, it happened historically. It doesn't present itself as just a poem or metaphor, but after the fact that it happened historically, it's it belongs in the genre of poetic and prophetic uh, literature. It needs to be interpreted that way. It's a poem about something that happened. Just like there's poems about the, the Mariner and various, the Charge of the Light Brigade and various other historical events. So um, what kind of happened in the reformers, starting with Martin Luther, had a concept that there was a German word that's, that's the same root word as literal or literary, but what he meant is that the Bible is a piece of literature and it needs to be understood as literature. In fact, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of people, my son John included, who I, who I struggle to keep up with their level of, of clarity and understanding of scripture is because they grew up in schools that taught them how to read novels and how to read literature. And I unfortunately uh, didn't pay attention to school until I became a Christian. And then I tended to get emerged in, in theology and history and so forth. I took a few American literature classes and things like that. But I, you know, uh, sometimes if you're not really uh, versed in how to read literature, you'll miss uh, lots and lots of things in the Bible. 
because there's word pictures and images and foreshadowings and, and all the things you get trained to see when you're steeped in how to read novels in classic literatures. So um, next, it's important to see that the Bible has one author who is our creator, one creator, one director. But coming out of this problem of the one and the many, um, this, this creator or director used 40 authors on three continents using three languages over a period of nearly 2,000 years. But the mystery of the one and the many is that the many diverse people, he created each one of them in the first place. He created them with the, with the, the bents or the, the presuppositions, the, the attitudes, motivations, and so forth that they each had. He worked in such a way in sanctifying them that, uh, that what was preserved to us as Scripture came through very different human personalities, but they all reveal the one creator who created them. Isn't that awesome? The Bible is, you know, like the more you, you, you really like, you know, once you, the more hours you spend studying the Bible, the more it just comes alive to you. Uh, it's just layer upon layer upon layer, and you can, because God is infinite, you'll never run out of layers of get, of more uh, understanding as the more you study it. Uh, every time you go through it again, you'll you'll see things that you totally missed before. Much like like uh, um, the Bible is written in a lot of ways, a little bit like mysteries. And my wife uh, introduced me to the genre of mystery. She loves mystery movies and books. And uh, uh, I've gotten pretty good now at, at watching mysteries and seeing the clues as they develop. But we all know that once we know the end of the case at the beginning, when you go back and watch the mystery again, you see all the clues that you missed, right? <laughs> and uh, the Bible is full of foreshadowings of its ultimate revelation of the king of the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom, and that the fact that the kingdom is going to progressively come into the world through the king and through the body and people of the king now. So... Um, it's important to see as we go through these many major themes, the reason I decided to do this major themes thing first, uh, which I'm probably going to end up just two weeks on eternal decree. I may uh, change it to 3A being called something like uh, the plenary inspiration of scripture or the one in the many or something. And because and, I don't think I'm even going to get much into eternal decree today. Um, but the, ma the many major themes of the Bible uh, add up to the one major theme of the Bible, and they are inextricably intertwined. And so if we're missing some of these subjects we're going to talk about in the major themes, I, I really felt like I couldn't get into uh, uh, chapter 4 or chapter 5, a survey of the kingdom history and the Hebrew scriptures until I uh, gave us chapter 3. The titles are on your back. Chapter 3, it's kind of important to see where we're going, has major themes that we're going to look at and chapter four has uh, the whole introduction to how to read symbolism and imagery. We're kind of a symbol-deprived society, uh, they say. Uh, that's why, you know, well, let's not go there. We'll, we'll go there when we talk about that. So, um, so again, 
the Bible is, is uh, a number of major themes inextricably intertwined to reveal one theme. And you really kind of need to know some of these major themes to, uh, before we get to the one theme of seeing the kingdom of God unfold from Genesis to Revelation, which we'll, which we'll cover in chapters uh, 4 and 5. Let's see. I'm sorry, 5 and 6 of this series. We'll go through, uh, for quite a few weeks, we'll go through the whole Bible seeing the development and the revelation and the unpacking of the kingdom of God, which again, a key to understanding that, go back and listen. To, if you missed chapter two, uh, there were a few people who came in late even today. So if you missed any of the three messages on chapter two, it's the most important things I've ever taught in 40 years. Um, and it's the most important things you need to know to, to follow this series. So please go back and, and listen to chapter two, the three messages uh, defining the kingdom of God. You need that foundation to be able to track with the rest of the series. So um, now, again, the Bible, one, uh, a major, the next point here is point E of Roman numeral two, and we're probably only going to get through Roman numeral three today. Um, the next point of Roman numeral two is that there's many genres that enlighten one message. This is important to see. Again, there's this idea that crept in that we're supposed to tr translate everything literally. And if you really study the writings of the people who have that idea, they never interpret things literally, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. There, but, um, you know, there's, there's no literal grain of mustard seed. It's, it's a parable. And so uh, one of the things that can help, you know, the better education you had in studying novels and mysteries and history and biographies uh, and so forth, the, the better you'll understand the Bible because the Bible is built with all these kinds of genres of literature. People always, you know, uh, some people are amazed when they hear that my favorite author is a guy named John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck was an anti-Christian communist who has a monument in Red Square to him. <laughs> and uh, the point of his books was against Christ. That was the whole point. In, in uh, The Grapes of Wrath, his, his most classic novel, which I read three times, there's a guy named Jim Casey whose initials are JC on purpose because he's mocking Jesus Christ through that character. Nevertheless, He's a powerful, powerful writer with amazing imagery and uh, ability to bring scenes to life uh, that, uh, that's just amazing, an amazing ability to empathize with fallen humanity and man, man's in, in humanity to man and man's depravity and so forth. Um, now, a lot of his stuff is sad and dark, like the Pearl and has unhappy endings, Tortilla Flat and so forth. But... Nevertheless, he's a great, great author, and being able to understand various genres of literature is the key to being able to understand your Bible, because the Bible is many genres of literature that, that need to, if we just had the didactic uh, parts of the Bible, you know, there's actually all these people who believe you should only read Paul, and for, there's actually people called Pauline dispensationalists who believe that that Paul's the only one who got it right. In fact, he had to come to sort of straighten out Jesus, and uh, there's a group, of, there's a church like that in Xenia, Ohio, and, um, and because Paul's the, because Paul 
they think, and wrongly think, Paul uses imageries and stories more than anybody, but they think that he has this didactic, uh, straight, principle upon principle kind of teaching, and, and all other kinds of teaching are just not that important. Nonsense. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, when you read Genesis 37 through 50 and you get into the biography of Joseph and into the history, this was a historical story that actually happened in real biographical people with real emotions. And when you track with that story, I, I can never get past the point where he, when he reveals himself to his brothers without just breaking down weeping it's, and becoming a mess. And that's the power of stories over the power of just didactic teaching, okay? So um, this uh, only literal, overly literally, literal uh, way of going about uh, Scripture has actually been part of the problem. Many, many Christians are aware of, and even evangelical leaders say, understand that, that there's been various uh, ways of looking at Scripture that have emerged over the last um, uh, century or so, that are that have are reductionists that have reduced the scriptures that have taken many of the most important uh, points out of that. We're going to actually study all of those reductionist ideas as mindsets, and you think they don't they don't affect you, but every person who's been brought up in a Bible believing culture has been has been affected a great deal by those kind of mindsets. And their mindsets that take the heart out of Scripture and they hinder uh, understanding. You can't you can't aim for what God's doing in the earth if you can't see it. And really, the whole point of this Kingdom of God series is to is to redirect us toward what God is really doing in the earth. Almost all Christians agree that the Christian the, the Kingdom is not is is future and and not yet, but that it is also now. But if you go back to see John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles' message, their message was about how the kingdom is now, how it's present, how it, how the first event, the first coming of Jesus Christ, was the true end times event, and that began a purpose, uh, a period of time called the last days, and that last days is going to call is going to be a time when God raises up bodies of Christians in, among every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and the earth is going to be filled with his glory as the, as the uh, waters cover the seas. That's the point of this whole series. Uh, if, we're, if we're thinking, you know, I, I, I can't stand it, but I, I, on Bible Gateway this morning, uh, and, you know, there's a banner ad for the uh, new movies that are coming out uh, about the Left Behind series, and and I and I just I, I look at it and I go, oh my, you know, like this. These are the number one selling books in Christian bookstores, and they're completely they're completely wrong. Completely, they have they they are the opposite message of the whole Bible, and yet they're the number one selling Christian books right now. And have been for uh, a decade or two. God help us. Okay, so we're going to look at that in chapter 12. Um, let's see if I can get through point number three. Maybe not. Might have to make that uh, next week. Um, I'll introduce it to us, and maybe we'll pick up there. Um, the Bible is a book of history. But it's not just any kind of history. 
the Bible isn't, doesn't cover events the way a humanist would cover events. I doubt if in the major news outlets, whatever kind of news they had in, in the Roman Empire, uh, that Jesus and his little, little posse of uh, homeboys or whatever you want, his disciples, his community of believers he was building, uh, gathered much attention. Yet they were the most important thing that had ever happened in the history of the world. But only a, only a few had eyes to see that. So one of the things you need to understand is the Bible is the history of the covenant purposes of God, the unfolding of his eternal decree, which we'll look at next week, and we're going to look at covenant in, right after eternal decree in the weeks to come. And the Bible focuses on the unfolding of the covenant purposes of God that are wrapped up in himself and his covenant with his people. And God has always intended to have a people for his own possession. That is why uh, a kind of Christianity that just gets more people through the turnstile and just basically uh, is, basically is uh, approaches them to be a consumer of meetings instead of equipping them to become disciples to serve is, is just not even hitting the right target at all. God's purpose in your life was not that you could enjoy the worship. This, we had wonderful worship Friday night. It was just awesome presence of God. And people were repenting and, and, and excited and prophesying. And wonderful. But that is a stepping stone. That, that's an end in itself because we love to love the love the Lord. But it's also just part of what we're doing to bring his glory into all the earth. The purpose of church is to equip you. Real quick, there's uh, different views of history. There's cyclical view, which means history repeats itself. There's the chaos view, uh, which uh, is sometimes called historical linear pessimism. That's the current view in, in Christianity today. Things are getting you know, bad and worse and darker, and, and God's going to have to rescue us out of here, uh, called the rapture. And things like this. And uh, then there's historical linear optimism in a humanistic way that man is improving in and of himself. We have better technology and, and the state is going to solve all problems. That's the view of, uh, say, Star Trek and other science fiction. You know, Star Trek's about a time when the United Nations has solved all the problems in the world and we no longer have poverty and man oppressing his fellow man and all these things. So now we're going to bring this wonderful order to the rest of the universe. <laughs> That's called science fiction. <laughs> and uh, so not that you can't enjoy that, as long as you understand that it's a, it's a totally crazy message. Uh, the biblical view is progressive revelation and establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. And we shall pick up, actually, we got only through uh, parts one and two today. We'll pick up with uh, Roman numeral three, the biblical view of history. And I'll rename this because it drives Emily crazy if I have chapter 3A1 and chapter 3A2. So I'll probably rename this message uh, chapter 3A, the plenary inspiration of scripture. And next week, we'll look at the biblical view of history. Uh, history, by the way, um, theology is the queen of the sciences. 
it's understanding biblical theology is the key to understanding all academic disciplines. You can't be a good engineer or a scientist or a good accountant if you're not steeped in Christ and his word. You just can't. You won't understand accounting if you don't understand Christ and his word. You could have a doctorate in accounting, but you'll still be blind to some of the major points of any discipline if you don't understand them biblically so. Does everyone got understand that? And theology is the key to that, but uh, history is the handmaiden of, of the queen. The queen is theology. The handmaiden of the queen is history. And God is progressing through history. The Bible itself is a book of history. All Christians should work toward uh, secondarily, besides having a working knowledge of, of all scripture and, and taking a systematic theology classes and, and getting well-founded in the things of God, all Christians should have some uh, basic working knowledge of history. Uh, history is the key to understanding who God is and what he's doing uh, as, as much as theology. Amen.